Hello, and welcome to Supply Chain Next. I'm your host, Richard Donaldson. Join me as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges practitioners face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. And welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next. I'm Richard Donaldson and uh, really, really excited today to have a colleague, friend uh, um, at Requis here, Brett Sanders. Uh, hey, Brett. Everyone, happy to be here. Yeah, and and I think I think you know with a little bit of advance kind of you know chat on this you know this episode uh, we're getting a, we're going to get a little geeky uh, we're going to talk about platforms. Uh, Brett is going to go through his background, but he is you know one of the originals here at Request. He has been leading the platform development team from the beginning. In fact, he even wrote the first line of code for Request. Uh, has a huge experience uh, or great experience in software development and. Um, all of that is going to lead to the conversation we're going to have today about platforms and some platform strategy, some of the best practices around building platforms for enterprises. Um, so although it is supply chain in focus, and certainly the supply chain next aspect of the episode is really to get into where platforms play for supply chains uh, in this world and decade of supply chain. So with all of that as a bit of background and leading into it, Brett, um, you know, would love to hear a little bit about, uh, you know, you, uh, kind of, you know, your background, how you got into software, um, you know, people, people are interested to hear kind of how to even get started. Like if you were talking to someone about uh, who, who's even thinking about getting into software uh, coding and platform development, like, like, you know, your story is going to help them kind of, you know, inspire them a little bit. So, you know, how'd you, how'd you get all into this? Yeah, I think for me, I was around tech um, implicitly a lot since I was young because my grandfather was a software engineer since the 50s. My uncle is in IT, so I was hearing about it through both of them. And then my brother, he got into tech in the late 90s. And so like even when Ruby on Rails was new in like the mid 2000s, um, I was aware of like even the difference from Ruby on Rails 1 to 2, things like that. So sometimes you you're aware of these things, but in high school, I took a coding course and it was visual basic and we were doing things like that. But at the time it was much, much before like the modern web. And so it wasn't, it wasn't at all like coding is today. It was, um, I mean, cause once the internet really took off and you started to get these synergistic effects, which we can get into with platforms, just a totally different world. And it's not really about the software. It's more like the value that gets unlocked. But back then when I first got in, to coding, it was just a much different landscape. Um, in the early 2000s, I did get into some flash development and we could speak on this a little bit because there are a lot of trends in tech. And this is something that I'm very aware of and senior coders are aware of. And at the time, everyone thought like flash was gonna take over the world. And clearly that didn't prove true. And so I, I think that that experience has shaped even some of how I view things today. Um, but that's how I sort of became aware of tech. And then the way that I really got into it was by creating my own startup. I think we've spoken a little bit about that. But that's, I mean, if you want to really get into tech, most people will say, just go do something real. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, my background is as a musician, and I wanted to create a startup around music gear. And so that's that's where I started to get really serious and want and want to learn about not just how to code, but how to build stuff. And I think that's been my orientation. And that is a little bit unique from some people that just want to say, like, I want to learn coding skills. Well, that's so a couple things in there. One is, mm -hmm. you know, your background also in music, I think, had mm -hmm. a parallel influence on your coding experiences because mm. you're not the first person I've met from coding land that's also a musician, right? There's something yeah. there inherent in that. Is that, mm. you know... Do you, have you drawn parallels between music and coding? Yeah, yeah. People have asked me about that, and like the way I got into music was actually through writing. Like <laughs> I didn't go to music just because of music. I got into music to express ideas and to tell stories. So I think if you think about that, there's there's like structures, and this is tends to be how I think about things. Like what are the structures, and then you can express yourself through different structures. So there, there is a dimension of that with coding where after you get past the syntax and the basics, you can start to see like certain patterns. Um, for example, like the data layer versus the presentation layer, to just be very simple. 
And with music, it's similar in the sense that there's music theory. And once you can grasp these rules, then you're sort of free to manipulate them and build things. And so that really affects, like when we start to talk about platforms, that does affect how I think about things. And we've talked about that and the difference between product management and development, where mm -hmm. I tend to view things more like a tool. And really, if you think about that, that's more because it's it's got certain rules and properties, whereas other people are thinking about it more from an application standpoint. And so mm -hmm. that that mindset has always interested me. And um, just in general, like whenever I learn stuff, I want to know like, what is the essence of how this thing works? Mm -hmm. So I think there's similarity there with music. Um, but I think the other thing is just, and I talked to a recruiter early on when I was getting into tech about this because he was asking us similar questions. And he his, his idea was just that the amount of hours it takes to become proficient as a musician, kind of the 10,000 hour rule. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of time and you have to build up a lot of intuition through experience. Right. So to actually become a good coder, it's it's not like you just sit down and do in three months, you can be a good coder. That's the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, we can well, talk, we could talk about it more. Sorry. Well, that's what I was going to double click on is, is a little bit of that, right? So mm. you know, a lot of people listening to this might even be early, you know, people thinking about getting into coding, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what did you expect getting into coding, you know, almost 20 years ago? And then mm -hmm. what was the reality that you learned about coding, you know, that you would pass on to someone who's even thinking about getting into it now? Yeah, I think one of the things that surprised me, and this is this is very different than music, because music hasn't really changed since the 1600s. I mean, music theory has been around similar, like when Bach was creating music to now. But in tech, it's it's kind of a whirlwind. So when I really got into tech, it was before the JavaScript frameworks really took off. And all that was starting to happen, but it was before React. And it was when like jQuery was still dominant. And then mm -hmm. from that time, like let's say 2007 to now, I mean, it just was this flurry of endless churn. And so a lot of senior software engineers you talk to, they've seen this. And a lot of them actually have a, have a theory that's kind of like a wheel and the wheel just turns sort of like fashion trends where you're going to see certain trends come up and then then they kind of come back in a different form later. And so, so when you're learning coding, like whatever you learn at that time, you know, if you, that will seem to you like that's the best way to do stuff. But if you give it three years, then you're going to see something new and then five, something new. And then by the time you're like 10 years in, you've seen these trends. And also there's a lot of, a lot of hype. Yep. And so you need to just be aware of that. But when you're first getting into it, I mean, it's not worth worrying about that. You just need to do it. And, and I just would advise people, like most people I meet, I advise not to necessarily become coders. Like there's a lot of roles you can have. So right. I'm like, are you sure? Like, do you enjoy sitting for eight hours a day? And I've had that personality my whole life where I can sit for, you know, five to eight hours and just do it. And so does my brother. And I saw him do that and get into coding successfully. Uh -huh. But I mean, as you know, there's tons of roles in, in IT and you need to play to your strengths. But assuming that you do have that personality, then the best thing to do is just start doing stuff and then get on a real project as quickly as you can. That, that's right. how you'll learn. Well, practical, practical lessons, you know, practice practices everything. It's almost mm -hmm. almost in all things, right? So so with that though, and again, I think it's really interesting because you're spanning a very interesting period. You know, if I if I look back to when you said, you know, you started mm -hmm. about 20 years ago, mm -hmm. from kind of early 2000s to now software development, right, has changed quite a bit mm -hmm. in just the time that you started to where we are now. And the trends are both in what uh, languages or libraries or, you know, uh, tools that people are using, but also kind of the direction it's going. And what mm -hmm. I wanted to contrast or have you reflect on a little bit is when you first started, people were writing programs kind of for themselves or web-based or whatever, but they're moving in a direction now away from this kind of owned software, right? Into this area of platforms that we're going to get in and talk about. You know, so mm -hmm. you know, what are your thoughts on that? Like, I mean, just think about your career the last 20 years. How, did, how have things changed to where you are today in building, you know, a supply chain platform? Like why mm -hmm. is, there a, is there a progression that happened in that sense? Yeah, that's, I mean, when I really got it serious about software, like things have not, 
from my view, haven't changed too much. I think the things mm-hmm. that's changed is actually more the dominance of certain companies, just basically absorbing all the smaller companies. So when I first really got serious about tech, there was a lot more competition actually, and a lot more smaller applications. And mm-hmm. these these larger companies, they come in and just acquire them and start to basically subsume them, you know, into their or they just want to squash them. So that that's something that has changed, but the on-prem versus, you know, being on the web, I feel mm-hmm. like is more of an enterprise versus a non-enterprise mindset. Fair and enough. That, that's what's been very interesting being a part of Requis is realizing, oh, like the supply chain space is very far behind in, mm-hmm. in, in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. Or stuff that's obvious, that seems obvious to me or my peers when I go to, software engineer engineering meetups, they would be shocked as well. I think switching over to this space. So I think it has to do with the industry. And the one thing that has changed a lot though, is actual platform effects. Cause you know, in the nineties we had like AOL and there was communities and chat rooms, but right when I started getting interested in tech was right before MySpace, And I actually wanted to share my guitar music online. Yeah. And there was no YouTube, there was no MySpace. There was none of these um, these platforms to to have these synergistic effects. So, like, I kind of I kind of wish sometimes I was born ten years later right. because I because I would have because I've written like hundreds of songs and I used to it was very hard to get your music out there back then in the you know the late nineties and now it'd be so easy and I feel like supply chain if you think about it, they're kind of back almost. In a certain sense, back in the '90s. Yeah, totally. But the rest of the world has accelerated so fast. So yeah, totally. Well, so so let's 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 click on that for a little bit. So also think about the context of writing code for a platform versus writing code for sort of a finished product, right? I mean that mm. that structure changes kind of the, how things are created. I mean maybe mm. the may, maybe there's a lot of there are a lot of similarities. You're still writing, you know, code. But how you approach it, how you design it, like talk a little bit about how that's evolved for you as well, too. And, mm. you know, coming to where we are now, building a never-ending platform, you know, for for a pretty large group of people, right? I mean, there's yeah. some differences there. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And to me, this really ends up in the agile territory. Ultimately, it's not right. I don't really differentiate in my own mindset between like a a modern web platform that's going to have a lot of synergistic effects or not. I view that not too much as a, as a coding question, but I, you know, I listened to some of your other interviews, like the guys at Maersk really resonated with me because mm-hmm. you could tell that they'd um, they've been involved in the real world and you were talking right. to them about standardization and certain problems like that. And if technology could solve them. And my personal view is that, is similar to what they said, which is that it kind of will unfold. It will unfold over time. It's not just software is not just going to solve it. It's a piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, like a lot of the challenge of developing a platform like we are is things sound easy at 10,000 foot level. Right. They're very hard right. when you get down in, in, in the details. And then also issues like standardization isn't something I can just solve in my role and Mm -hmm. there is no platform that's just going to solve it so a lot of what i i think i think that i'm good at um and this comes more not from my coding background actually it's sort of my entire background is just Mm -hmm. i have the more do it just get it done i don't want to talk about it and that Mm -hmm. comes from the startup experience and it comes from other things but i think that that's very very critical when you're trying to affect real change well, let's talk about that for a second, because I think that you bring mm-hmm. up an interesting point where, you know, the mentality of a lot of coders and even people in technology land is to just mm-hmm. jump in and do stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, almost without knowing, it's like jumping in the deep end of the pool and I don't know if I can mm-hmm. swim yet, right? But I'll figure it out. That, that's very contrary to a lot of enterprises and their mindsets. Mm-hmm. They want to be very thoughtful before they make, they don't want to make a mistake. They feel like their business could be impacted or even in the case of the energy sector, you know, companies there, they feel like a mistake causes people to die, you know, like Deepwater Horizon yeah. or something like that. 
So there's kind of a natural conflict between what the enterprises and specifically even supply chain are looking for in platforms mm -hmm. and then how you actually develop a platform. And there's a learning curve. You know, can you talk a little bit about that, you know, and what the experience has been? Yeah, I know when I started Request and I started interacting a lot more with people in an enterprise mindset and I didn't understand it. And I had to actually meet some people in person just to talk to them and try to empathize because I enjoy hearing about people's experiences and I just couldn't understand where they were coming from. Because if you go to software meetups, most engineers aren't, aren't that, you can't really build software and be a paranoid person. It's too complicated. Right. And um, you can't, you can't be too concerned about a lot of things. And so it took me a while to understand, to understand that mindset. And then the way to manage that, I mean, I think we've I've kind of figured it out over time and maybe we could unpack some of that because mm -hmm. of course you've been involved in it too. But one thing I do is I try to make sure that we are going to protect against real catastrophe because right. then you're more freed up. So it's like, okay, we might not be able to get to the perfect solution because nothing gets built that way, but we are going to make sure that the worst case scenario can't happen. And then something else that we do that mitigates against or, or helps to bridge that gap is transparency and auditability. Mm -hmm. And that avoids a lot of overcomplication because if you can make sure that you really have an audit trail of everything that's happening, mm -hmm. then you don't have to worry about really high, like um, high grant, like very controlling roles and permissions and these kinds of things that ultimately enterprises will need but you need to maintain that flexibility. Right, right. And and so that flexibility is not generally in, you know, inherently a part of the DNA of enterprises and, and mm -hmm. depending which enterprises you're speaking to, right? So there's also an interesting kind of that we're touching on trend that's happening where we're talking about platforms, right? Mm -hmm. And the idea here is platform adoption by enterprises. And we can go back to Jeff Parker and Peter Evans and those guys and the work they're doing at the Platform Strategy Institute. You know, not only are we in the middle of the decade of supply chain, but we're in the decade of platforms. Mm -hmm. That that, but that means a lot to different people. You're you're yeah. in the middle of it. You're building it. You're building a platform for an industry sector and supply chain. You're leading the platform development. So, what does it mean to you to sort of be in the midst of all this platform development and enterprise adoption of platforms? Like, does that does that even impact you at all in how you think and view and what we're building and what we're doing? And think about the other in, in the audience. There's a lot of people out there today is, you know, would be listening going, well, what is a platform first of all? And then how is that applied into this enterprise space? And why is it even different? Why should I care that, that mm -hmm. then enterprise are going to run on platforms? Right. I mean, do you yeah. have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I, I put down a note cause I wanted to make sure to reference this book. It's the yep. um, escaping the build trap, Melissa yep. Perry. And that book really helped me to just, kind of articulate what I, how I think about things. And really her main point is just, you need to focus on the value or mm -hmm. as well as the problem. And so that tends to be actually how I think about this. Like companies, if you're going to deliver real value to them and solve real problems that they actually have, they will use your platform. Like mm -hmm. if you're just sort of giving, if you're just keeping things at a high level and you're not actually solving real problems, why would they want to sign up for another platform? These people mm -hmm. are busy. Mm -hmm. so I think that's something that we've done well at Request and we've gotten better at over time. And um, I would advise other people, and this resonates with the um, the guys that you interviewed that do Aviado from, mm -hmm. from Marist, they were saying the same thing, which is, you know, a lot of companies, they're kind of playing games and not necessarily focusing on real value. Right. If you can get these, if you can get these adopters, the people at these companies who really have real problems, if you can get them to start being involved in the development, right, then that's critical. And and that seems a bit odd for somebody because I know you're asking me about like the actual software development, but that's mm -hmm. that's actually step one because you know in my role I have so much pressure. I'm kind of in the middle of all this um, endless pressure that seems to be wanting to pull things into to become overly complicated. That could be from the UX and the design to the requirements, you know, from more of the PM side or the field side. Mm -hmm. 
but then as well as on the tech side. And what helps to cut through all that is to have a very clear sense of what the outcome is and what, what the value is, and then to get real adoption. Mm-hmm. So, and so in that, but I think that's also, again, you, we live and breathe it so much. Sometimes we, 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 mm-hmm. we sort of gloss over it, but identification of the real problem and articulating mm-hmm. that clearly and simply is mm-hmm. not an easy thing for a lot of people to do. No. <laughs> and enterprises seem in general to want to overcomplicate things or overthink mm-hmm. things or over engineer mm-hmm. things. And that seems to be also a trend here. And even the enterprise adoption of platforms is, and especially in, in new spaces like supply chain is not to get overly complicated, right? Don't, don't mm-hmm. overthink it, you know, get in and start doing it and using it, which again can be somewhat anathema to an enterprise risk tolerance. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. well, I don't want to try it till it's done. Well, it's not done till you start using it. Yeah. <laughs> There's that tug of war. I mean, how, mm-hmm. how, have you, how have you sort of dealt with that kind of, you know, adoption? Yeah, I think that you need to find the right people who really need what you're trying to solve. So there's going to be some people at an organization who are there just, just to have a job and maybe are out for themselves to some degree. I'm, I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. That's kind of life. But then there's people that really have real problems and, and sometimes they can see ahead a little bit or they're, or they're more collaborative type people. And these are the people you want to identify. And then I think what happens is as you collaborate, you know, I, I know I've probably rubbed off on you as well as some of the other people in terms of like, cause I, I cause I have to build the stuff. So I have to make it simple because I, I can't right. code something that's hard. Right. So my job, like I joke with other people, if you want to do my role, which is, you know, a hybrid role of sort of like product management and coding. I have to understand mm-hmm. both and do the translation. Mm-hmm. If you want to get into my role, you'd better get used to saying no in, right. in different forms. Because like I, we can't, you can't come out of the gate with something super complicated. And most of the people that are coming to a platform, they want something to unlock the value, and that does to have the to have the most value. It can't be too complicated. Right, right. So. And 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 with that, let me like because now you're opening the door to one of the things mm-hmm. I also want to touch on is a lot of people listening. Also, I don't think again because they're not in this space. Mm-hmm. They think platforms and they go, well, shoot, you know, Facebook is a platform or, uh, you know, Twitter is a platform, which they are. They absolutely are. Yeah. But they're consumer oriented platforms. Mm-hmm. There seems to be some pretty big differences emerging in the world of enterprise platforms and the expectations around them. Right. Um, and that's been, a, I think, also part of the learning journey here in addressing the supply chain organization and building a platform for them. What does it mean to be a B2B platform versus a B2C platform? Because I think you've had experience in both now. What are yeah. some of the what are some of the differentiate differences between the two? Yeah, that's been an interesting thing. I think that we've learned a lot um, over time by doing it. And you know, one of the the main differences is just the psychology of the user because. When you're coming to a B2B platform on both sides, you're there to do your job. Mm-hmm. Whereas on a B2C, you know, one side you're there to do your job. Like the platform, I, one platform I worked on in the past was a B2C and um, it was mostly for musicians. And so the musicians were creating all their content, but then the presentation side, you know, trying to basically please the users Um Mm-hmm. the fans of these musicians, whereas in B2B, both sides are trying to do work. And so, you know, you have to keep that in mind all the time. And that has a lot of consequences for the design and the UX. It's not so much about trying to make pretty screens. It's really about delivering value and as well as efficiency. Mm-hmm. And so this, as I was saying earlier, I feel like I, my role, I'm a lot of time caught in the middle of a lot of desire, not desire, but Every role can overcomplicate stuff. And one of them that we found has been surprising is the designer and UX role mm-hmm. when you're dealing with B2B. Um, and so I think what I found to mitigate that is you want to look at business platforms. And one thing I do, or I did early on was whenever I'd go to coffee shops to work, because I, you know, sometimes go change the environment, I would look at business people and I would look at what they were doing. And most of the time they're working in Excel. Mm-hmm. Because they're doing a lot of business manipulation and analysis. And so a lot of the B2B needs is, is just that. Mm-hmm. And, so you, and so you're trying to um, empower the people to do, 
to do their job. And keeping that in mind as you go is quite hard. I think at this point, it's maybe second nature to us because right. we've been doing it a while. But I think if you're getting into the space, there is an adjustment there because you could waste a lot of valuable resources, not just coder resources, but everyone's time by focusing too much on, say, the color or like the button size and what happens when you click a button and the users don't really care if, mm-hmm. if they're there to get their work done. Right. And so is that, and, and, let, and let's sort of expand on that a little bit in developing what we've you know developed or you've seen developed so far, mm-hmm. and especially building a team of coders to address this. Do you, do you express that difference to them? Because, you know, at the end of the day, you're still handing off work to coders. You don't want them to philosophically build, you know, these shiny, you know, overly UI kind of heavy, you know, things, widgets, gadgets, whatever, you know, but get practical, get, you know, get, get code out that people can use. Is that an adjustment for people that you've trained that you brought into the platform team from a code coding perspective? Um, I would say not really because most, most coders who have been coding since around maybe 2010, I'd have to look it up, but whenever Twitter bootstrap came out, okay. basically what happened was they open sourced a lot of these larger companies will open source their toolkits and basically they open sourced their entire UI toolkit because before mm-hmm. then everyone made custom UI. So most coders are actually very familiar with just taking UI and just using it. Like it, it's a toolkit, like you're buying a toolkit at, at Home Depot to do some work. Um, and so that's actually very familiar to them. What tends to happen is if, if you don't translate the requirements to the absolute essence, that's where like we get a lot of issues. But, but the one challenge we've had is interjecting heavy design versus pure UX. And I think mm-hmm. that's a topic kind of haven't, really discussed in a while, but the difference between UI UX and UX Mm -hmm. is pretty big. Yep. And so the issue of just keeping the speed up from a coder's perspective at this point, for example, at Request, you know, we've, we've used Bootstrap and Mature UI, but we're at the point where we need our own custom UI. And so we're, we're um, basically creating our own UI at this point, but, um, but that's pretty familiar, but I think the difference between UI UX and UX is is an interesting topic that if you're getting into this platform space, especially for supply chain is important. Well, I think you've kind of already touched on it though a little bit and let's just expand. So user interface, right? Uh, user mm-hmm. experience. Um, you also talked about, you know, a little bit or touched on, you know, UI and UX mm-hmm. inherently within consumer land has more of a, you know, it's just a more mature but different requirements. Consumers are just a little bit different. You know, Facebook versus LinkedIn. Um, you know, take any kind of consumer platform and compare it against a business platform. Yeah. Um, you know, and 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 its design and, and or its outcome or output, as it were. But maybe let's talk. To, you know, use this opportunity to, to describe to you what UI and UX means, both in the context of what we're doing, but then also differentiate between consumer UI and UX and enterprise UI and UX. Right? Because mm-hmm. even that's got some differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that we've encountered at Request, and I think this would be true for a lot of other supply chain platforms, is that the user tends to be somebody who's been in the industry a while and may not be as tech savvy. Mm-hmm. And that's a pretty obvious observation, but somehow it's hard for people to embrace that because, you know, I, I'm pretty tech savvy and the way I use websites is is a lot different from somebody who say didn't grow up with all this stuff and isn't, isn't used to pulling out their smartphone and getting an Uber immediately. And meanwhile, mm-hmm. posting all these social media posts and hopping around YouTube, like seeing 10 videos in five minutes like that. Right. And so a lot of these people are coming that aren't in that mindset. And, you know, user experience is a term that I've become frustrated with. I try not to use it anymore because I feel like it's abused. But if you even think about what it is, it's the user experience and you got to know who your users are. Right. And so like what we found very effective, and this is something I would advise is you need to get an actual user. In our case, we have several internal users who are the exact persona and just go through the site with them and make sure it works. And mm-hmm. once you do that enough, you can start to see certain patterns. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of subtle details, like for example, 
using icons that pretty icons doesn't work versus just text. Right. That's a small detail, but which is interesting, but don't go over that too quickly because I think that's Mm -hmm. also inherent what you're talking about with some of the people that are onboarded onto the platform now Mm -hmm. might not be used to using icons as, as people who are used to using icons. I mean, it's a very, very subtle, Mm -hmm. but it, it speaks to kind of the user base or their common knowledge around how to use technology Mm-hmm. It's just not, you know, they're not as familiar with it, right? So they don't yeah. po- poke all the icons. They need something to read to be literal, literal like in what they yeah. see, right? Otherwise they miss it. Yep. Being very literal and then making sure you have very clear messages that pop up, you know, on a site where you're trying to look very sleek and clean and beautiful, those probably wouldn't be the principles that you're adopting. Like if you're, right. you know, like an Etsy or something like that or Airbnb. Right. There's, I mean, there's always UI UX aspects that are transferable to anything, mm-hmm. but if you lose sight of the actual UX, it's just, it's very, very hard to build a platform. So. Yep. Well, let's, let's, let's expand the aperture a little bit and talk a little bit about just what it means to be an enterprise platform. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, your thoughts on, you know, kind of where the world's go- where enterprises are going with the usage of these platforms, because I mean, let's, let's face it. Enterprises are moving in the direction of adopting platforms to run their entire business. You know, Salesforce mm-hmm. is already there in the sales and marketing group. You know, Workday is already in there in the in the in the HR department, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, other supply requests, of course, but other supply chain and operational platforms are starting to you know move into the, those sectors. Mm-hmm. What does that mean to be a platform in the enterprise? And then also from just a development um, framework or foundation, how do you how do you plan for that platform to integrate with other platforms, right? Because it's it's mm-hmm. you know the, the larger objective here is that you're a piece of a puzzle that the business needs to run on, right? Mm-hmm. You're just one piece. You're not everything. You know, you're not building a sales, marketing, HR, and supply chain platform. You're building platforms for each of those disciplines. Mm-hmm. Right. So how do you view that, you know, conclusion that, you know, 10 years from now, all these enterprises are going to run on five or six foundational platforms. How are you thinking about building Requis to accommodate that structure? Yeah, it's a, you know, once again, the guys that that you interviewed with uh, at Aviado and Maersk, I think what they said totally resonated with me, which was, you could build everything with open APIs and just basically act as an aggregator. But the challenge is, is like how to, how to deliver that value, because mm-hmm. if, if that's ultimately all you do, then you're still not like standardizing. You're not ultimately simplifying the problem. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times that's actually kind of the middle step. Cause if you could get really clear on here, here's all you need just, and, and, but to get to that point, like if you can, if you can have the, the data structure that is the standard on your platform, mm-hmm. then you can really make life simpler for people because everyone will be speaking the same language. Right. But to get that adoption, of course, you can't just come out of the gate with that. And people have so many systems. So that's where the open API ends up as a mapping. So what I what I do, and this is what I would advise other people, is you need to get very good at extremely short-term thinking. Like, mm-hmm. what can we deliver within three months? But then also like, what about within the next one to three years? But then what are we going to do in, in three years plus? And um, the reason why that's important is it's, it's hard to, you don't want to make very short-term, short-sighted decisions, but to get stuff done, sometimes you have to. But if you have the bigger picture in mind, then your short-term decisions, you can make sure that those things will be flexible and you'll be able to end up where you need to go. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've had a lot of integrations at Requis, for example, that I know are probably more short-term, mm-hmm. but we need to get the data and we need to figure out the UX of what's happening there. Mm-hmm. And then the next step would be the open API. But the final step is not the open API, in my opinion. It's actually making the entire ecosystem very simple. Mm-hmm. And that's where the standardization will take time. So... Um, that's and is that of- standard? Is that standardization? Sorry to jump in because I don't want to. I don't want to lose sight of that one too. But standardization—you also kind of flew over it. Mm-hmm. 
it's standardization of data or standardization of something else? Um, just everything, really. Because yeah. if you think about it, when you're using Facebook, you know, let's just use Facebook as an analogy. Let's say, let's say since you were born, you'd been storing data somehow in mm -hmm. some sort of structure and every family was different. Mm -hmm. And then you wanted to move to Facebook, but you had all this legacy data and all these different ways of doing things. It would be much different. Whereas Facebook actually came out and is the standard out of the gate. So that's why they're so powerful because they had that standardization up front and nothing had preceded it. So everything, as people injected their data, it was immediately part of their standard. But I think what? inherent in that, though, is the data needed to be standardized. So the mm -hmm. forcing function that you're describing is not dissimilar to when Salesforce started. Mm -hmm. um, what preceded Salesforce were all these individual Rolodexes, you know, digital Rolodexes, mm -hmm. you know, Goldmine Act. And this is, you know, circa 1988 or 1998, mm -hmm. 1999. Yeah. And then what Salesforce said was, OK, I'm going to make it really easy for you to input, import, export your data into our platform. That was step mm -hmm. one, because once they did that and the data mm -hmm. was there in a standard yeah. format, then they could grow the platform into what you know it today. Mm -hmm. To your point, in the area of operations and supply chain, we're still at that formative stage where we're trying to slurp in the data from all these multiple sources, including post-it mm -hmm. notes, mm -hmm. to get it into one place. Like That's almost like phase one before the platform can really begin to take off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, there's no simple way to, 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 to get that. It's like cleaning a garage. I mean, it's, it's one of the worst parts of this exercise and probably a reason why people haven't done it to this point. Um, but that's an ugly truth behind moving to a platform is you're going to have to take a bunch of legacy data mm -hmm. and it's going to suck, but you're going to have to put it into <laughs> a platform yeah. like, like Request. I mean, can you talk to that for a little bit? Yeah, so this is where the short-term and mid-term and then very long-term thinking is critical because sometimes you just have a short-term need. Like we need to do an integration with this company that's high value. Well, you should just make sure that integration goes very smooth because sometimes they're not they're too busy to conform to your own API. Right. And so sometimes this is something else is you need to be very proactive sometimes when you're trying to deal. I mean, really just in startups in general, but I think with enterprises there's a lot going on on the other side of the fence. So one of the things that you can do as a, as a startup or a mid-sized company is you, you can be the accelerator and make sure that that happens. So that, that would be the short-term integration and the open API could, could be there, but if it's just a passive open API and you're not making sure that this happens, you mm -hmm. might not get the data. Mm -hmm. Which but is I'm, another interesting question though, mm -hmm. because even opening our API, like we've had an open API since the beginning, Mm -hmm. I don't think that many people have actually used it though. I don't think they're ready mm -hmm. to use it. Like even their data yeah. is so messed up on their backend that they have mm -hmm. to put it into an interim form, which 98% of the time is a CSV file yeah. <laughs> or back to Excel, right? Yeah. Yeah. We came out of the gate with an API and then we realized we needed to do a lot more handholding and a lot more proactive um, collaboration with the right, right people at these companies. Right. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. I think we are at the point where our API will start to be used more. Mm -hmm. um, but in the long term, ideally what you want to have is is a is the standard as standard data. But it's one of those problems like to most coders, if you bring that up, it just sounds like kind of buzzwords or very right. far fetched right. to soft to software engineers. But for me, the the thing that's kind of helped is actually studying what Amazon does. In okay. particular, their vendor central platform, because I, I personally view it, what Amazon's done as very amazing in the mm -hmm. in many ways. But just their cataloging structure is is very impressive. And what and, was it about the cataloging structure that gave them their success? Right, because I think that's a key attribute that you're sort of touching on that might not be yeah. explicit. Right, I mean, what explicitly about that effort did mm -hmm. they make that gave them the power to become what they are today? Yeah, I'd love to read more about this to get the whole story. But from what I've observed, you know, most consumers aren't aware that there's a, there are there's a site called Seller Central and another called Vendor Central. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get your products into Amazon, there is a lot of work involved in that. You have to apply by category. You have to register all your UPCs, and then they do 
they send you templates for the products to enter the data that are standardized. They're very robust. It's, it's very impressive and it takes a long time. So is there any clear text in that? Um, they use CSVs with macros built in to standardize right. things. They don't even have a UI to enter the data, which is similar to other complicated systems. But the thing that is important, I think, is that you can't just automate away everything. Like there, there is a human review process to that because you do need to make sure that the data is quality. Right. So I think depending on what the domain is and how much standardization is important, then you know there's a spectrum here. But yep. I think if if you want to start to really think about these problems, like and you're, you're the one who will have to figure out how to build this, like. It's not like I'm building everything myself. I'm collaborating with people. I always want sure. to work with people smarter than myself. But even to start to get the team on the right direction, I think looking at Amazon is very interesting, this vendor central. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, you could get an account or whatever. Um, but in terms of like supply chain platforms, the challenge is, well, how many custom data fields are there? Because right. as soon as you open up the custom data field as an opportunity, then you're no longer playing, you're no longer going to be able to really standardize. And this is the challenge. I think Salesforce actually allows tons of customization. Mm -hmm. So Salesforce isn't necessarily standardizing. And so I know, I know at Request, like the long-term goal is that we will be the standard. Yep. And that's important because that's the very long-term thinking. And I know when we start started working together, you know, you would say stuff like that and at the time I was much more in the coder mindset, I guess, or the software engineer mindset. And it sounds too far-fetched, but as you, as you start to think short-term, midterm and long-term, that's how, that's to me, the skill you need to learn to, mm-hmm. to do a lot of like what I do. Mm-hmm. Now let's turn, let's turn a little bit here and we're, we're, we're you know, going to kind of wind, wind down a little bit, but let's, mm-hmm. you know, from a platform perspective, and again, we've sort of been talking about platforms, your career, kind of how you, mm-hmm. you know, have gotten to the place now where you're leading a platform development team. And I would absolutely validate you have one foot in platform management, platform development, but as platforms are kind of all the buzz right now and, and more of a general question, mm-hmm. is there anything that's different about how you approach the development of a platform than what you've seen before, right? Kind of looking forward. So for people wanting to get in, like like mm-hmm. someone who's listening and says, you know, I want to get into platform as a coder. Is there anything mm-hmm. different about that mindset or is it just the same? And then secondly, is if you're sort of thinking platform strategy and adoption in the enterprise space, is there something about how, how platforms can accelerate themselves to become, because there are a lot of platforms being developed right now, right? Like a lot of people mm-hmm. are starting companies that are platforms aiming at the enterprise space. Like, how do you give them the practical advice to say, well, you know, do this in the first few years, it's going to help yeah. you get faster, you know, kind of thing. So first one is about coders. The second one is about mm-hmm. people just generally building platforms to address enterprises and how to avoid yeah. some of the things we've seen and, you know, gotten the scars along the way. Yeah. I think the hard thing about building a platform that has a lot of functionality, and this is what's unique to me personally, because the platform I worked on that was a music platform had a lot of functionality, but we probably have like 10 times more and it's going to keep growing. So the amount of functionality in a platform um, is, is different because a lot of people work at companies where they're solving one problem and it might be a very complicated problem, but as a coder, that's kind of nice because you get to focus on that really hard piece. And that's what I did actually before I worked at Request. We worked on a very very hard problem, which was basically just getting data out of um, the hypervisor of like a cloud platform. And it was a very technically challenging, but it was a very constrained problem. Whereas platforms just, they are gonna infinitely kind of, not infinitely, but they're gonna have lots of capabilities and lots mm-hmm. of modules. So, so to software engineers, or my advice would be to start to think about coupling and decoupling a lot and also to think about to, to think about how you're going to have boundaries within these modules. And this is, again, comes down to short-term and mid-term and long-term thinking. Mm-hmm. Because if you come out of the gate with that amount of, com- the amount of complexity that you're going to end up with in five years, you're going to be paralyzed with how hard 
it is to code on, against this thing. And and I, I before COVID, I used to go to meetups almost every night. Mm-hmm. And this has really influenced me because I would go to lots of, and this would be some more advice I would give because the best way to see how to go into the future is to get a lot of experience, a lot, as many experiences as you can. So if you, as a coder, just to be a little technical, like if you go to some Haskell meetups and some JavaScript where they do TypeScript and go to Golang and go to Java meetups and go to different communities, then you can start to um, get more exposure. But ultimately what matters is more like the, the system thinking and the managing of the complexity. Mm-hmm. So that's on the coder side, like if you're trying to build a platform. Um, and then on the more PM side, you, you really need PMs who get the mindset of how to get things done. Um, and that's, that's critical. So I think like, you know, at Requis, we've rubbed off on each other and the other PMs. Yep. And that helps a lot. Yep. Yep. Well, so, and, and, and you'll kind of wind things up a little bit here, but looking forward. So, you know, is there anything that you see kind of in the, in the near mid or long term as far as platform mm-hmm. execution? Like what are the big things that you see over the next couple of years mm-hmm. um, in the development and growth and scaling out of the platform? You know, for instance, it could be something as on the refactoring backend, or it could be the distribution of the platform across multiple uh, data centers mm-hmm. from a top, you know, topological kind of view of you know, where this thing's housed because it's got to mm-hmm. run twenty four seven, right? I mean, mm-hmm. we we're still, you know, in one data center and one part, you know, of Amazon mm-hmm. AWS, yeah. you know. But like, as you look out two, three, four years, like, how are you viewing this platform as it evolves and scales? Yeah, the challenge for me is that we want to have a holistic platform. But this this goes goes into the coupling and decoupling, which for people that don't know those terms, they are they are sort of technical terms in software. It's basically where you draw the boundaries and if you want to extract pieces of your system out. So this is something that I've my approach tends to be just to say whatever my concerns are from the beginning. So I've been asking questions, you know, while working at Request, but this be true for any platform, like would we be able to split this app up into several apps like like the Google suite does? Is mm-hmm. that a, is that what we're thinking? And the answer has been no, we want to keep a holistic platform. So from from my angle, what we're what we're doing is we're creating the holistic experience in the UI. And of course, the back end is prepared to be split up into various pieces. Mm-hmm. But as soon as you split it up, you're adding complexity. Yep. And so, you know, mm-hmm. me and the senior coders on my team, this is stuff we talk about a lot and it's more for the midterm. And then, you know, the very long term, if we, if you're going to blow up and become an Amazon or something, I mean, you're going to have so many, if you're going to become a huge company, you're going to have so many technical challenges at that point, it's going to be pretty wild. So it's Mm -hmm. a little hard to think that far down the road. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Understandable. And it's just, you know, it's, it's one of these things is, you know, you kind of learn as you go. Um, But, you know, tagging into here, you've got a little bit of a little bit, you have this huge momentum building around enterprise supply chain, but Mm -hmm. equally you have an enormous momentum building around the idea of platforms, right? Mm -hmm. So sort of coming full circle to where we started is, you know, concluding with, you know, platforms, the day and age of, writing discrete software programs mm. seems to be getting smaller and smaller and everything that we're writing today is in some way, shape or form, if it isn't directly aspires to become a platform, right? Mm. You know, and when you look at the sort of landscape, you know, it doesn't mean you're not, you know, writing discrete things for you yeah. know, apps or the phone or whatever, but the, it just seems like it's certainly an enterprise land, you know, very rarely are you going to see enterprises adopting custom solutions for themselves anymore. Mm-hmm. They want to live yeah. on platforms, right? It seems mm-hmm. like that's kind of the direction they're all going. Is that, you know, from a coding perspective or even a strategic perspective, like if you think mm-hmm. about that, what you know, where it's going? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of companies that move, that move from an on-prem to something on the internet or, you know, if you want to say on the cloud, they tend to look for something more like a Salesforce or an SAP where it's more customizable. I think the big shift, and this is, what I was trying to say earlier with the Facebook analogy would be if they actually move to something that is truly sim- truly simpler, which would mean mm-hmm. like the standardization is on that platform. Um, 
that is just harder to pull off because you have to get you have to get cri- past that critical adoption. I think that would be the biggest the biggest uh, hurdle, which I know you know is discussed in the platform book um, and things like that. So the the thing that I'm that I'm curious about though is to see how reg- how regulation. I put this down as a note. I just wanted to bring up. Yep. I am very curious to see as enterprises move more and more real world with problems with have like real risk mm-hmm. or moves into the cloud, you know, where somebody could die or you could cause a catastrophe, like in the supply mm-hmm. chain through software. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious to see if more regulation is starting to be injected. And I already feel this with the GDPR and you'll notice on sites right now, you'll see more and more compliance coming in because I, I kind of feel like that's what's going to start to happen as we get more business, not in a customized solution, but in like a general plot, you know, out there in the, in the wild. Yeah. Well, that's, and I think that's, that's a good way to kind of, you know, kind of put, put an exclamation point on it in that, you know, plat- platforms are certainly here to stay, right. You know, platform mm-hmm. writing, coding, you know, there's similarities to it, but certainly a, you know, kind of do it first, you know, you got to kind of get in that mindset. Um, and then growing a team and building a team to address and build platforms is not something you know to be taken lightly. That that mm-hmm. dynamic is also shifted a little bit, right? Um, and so there's just a lot in there. So this is, I mean, you know, and just any random thoughts that you have at the end here, you know, what kind of, you know, just just to sort of close it out, like anything that you would sort of impart on people or you know had the the moment where you're like, this is something I'd love for people to hear about my experiences. And you know, this isn't our last conversation, but you know. Mm-hmm. Um. I can share like one thing that I think is effective that's, or two things I think to getting things done because ultimately, you know, that's, that's going to be a hurdle for a lot of people, but, but one is to have very effective working groups. Mm -hmm. So for example, at Reckless, when we really want to get things done, we create like a working group and we hit that problem very hard, maybe for Mm -hmm. three months. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure you get the right people on there, but just having that focus versus, Sometimes you don't need to operate that way. Um, but the other is, this is more technical. This is just a tip I would share that's I have not seen done before, but at Request, we of course use, we use Trello and we use GitHub. But one thing that we do is we use a lot of video um, mm-hmm. and I make the developers go through with all their pull requests. They actually go through the code and share it. And then we share that internally as an organization but this actually keeps your speed up a lot. So this is just like a tip. If anyone is curious about how to accelerate things, they could reach out to me. Yeah, for sure. But but actually making the developers go through what they're delivering and speak to it, it actually kind of connects it back to the business side. Right. And it and it helps to keep things moving because they're not just relying on automated tests, they're actually having to do the UX themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a small tip, but I think if if you know, if you want to really accelerate, it, it helps. So, yeah, well, I think I think it's a great, great, great point there to 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 put people in. I mean, the videos have been extremely helpful. So, well, listen, I want to thank you much. It's been a you know, it's, it, things that fly by as they always do. We could spend hours on this, but uh, you know, this is the first of many conversations. To get a little bit more technical into the platform development side of the equation. You know, over the course of this yeah. year, and I know you're going to be writing some stuff just on your experiences. Got your own blog coming out, but uh, you know, it's been a, it's been a really good session. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Richard. This is Richard Donaldson. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about the episode or topics in supply chain you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at supplychainnext at requis.com. And while you're at it, why not check out the Requis platform at supplychain.requis.com. Requis allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud, collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at www.requis.com dot com.